closer together. Um, I can't see who's in the back. I've got bright lights in my face here. Um, so, uh, but we, we did want to encourage everyone to come closer into the middle. Um, okay. All right. Yeah, we, we, we're, trying to, we're trying to do this thing here. We're trying to make this happen. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so, turn in your Bibles to Colossians, the first chapter. And what I'm going to do is hit this timer on my phone here. Now, one time I was up here, not up here, but I was up preaching and forgot to shut the ringer off on my phone, you know, the, the timer. I, had, I was at a place where I had to preach only 20 minutes, and I was going, and I was going, and I, was, I worked up a lather, and this alarm went off. And I said, well, that's it, I'm done. And I just walked off. <laughs> I put it on vibrate, and <laughs> hopefully it'll give me a cue. So, uh, <clears throat> Colossians 1, uh, verses 12 and 14. And you might be thinking, well, didn't we read, didn't we go through verses 9 through 14? I stopped just shy of verse 12 and went from 9 to 11 deliberately so we could pick up here this week. And... Um, and I'll start back in 9, but I'll focus on 12. So, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience, with joy, Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Father, thank you um, for your grace thank you for this day. Thank you, O oh God, that you have um, pulled us in and brought us near to the kingdom by your unconditional love, Lord, that you chose us before the foundation of the world. And uh, your word says that uh, you were found by a people who did not seek you. Your grace saves uh, the wayward and the rebellious. Lord, open our hearts and minds this morning to hear what you have for us in your holy word convict us and convince us of the word of God and let us leave this place changed and different than the way we came in. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so the big idea here is um, Jesus brings us out of the slavery of darkness, of sin, and into the freedom and light of his kingdom. Um, there is one foundational story that really sets the tone for the entire Bible. Now, we read the New Testament, and we know that the New Testament is both off the Old Testament, and we know that, with, we know that in some sense. We know that the Old Testament is the foundation 
of what's going on in the New Testament, in the life and work and ministry of Jesus Christ. But when we read the New Testament, we can tend to not have that in mind. We, we, kind of, uh, we kind of feel like the end of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, was like a pause button. And when we hit the play button, we start in Matthew and we've just, we just keep moving. That's not really what's going on. What's, what's going on is the Old Testament is this foundation that has been laid. It is the story of God's work in the world, the promises and the expectations and even the fall and rebellion of man. All of these things happen in the Old Testament. And so when Jesus and the apostles and the New Testament writers write and speak, for them, they are using the apparatus and the framework of the Bible that they know, which is the Hebrew Scriptures. The one foundational story of redemption that informs much of their thinking and much of the language of the New Testament is the foundation, um, really, of the Bible's idea of salvation that flows from the story of the Exodus. The Exodus tells, us, tells the story of uh, God sending Moses into Egypt to declare to Pharaoh, who, uh, wicked Pharaoh, who was starting to... Um, but when Moses was born, oppress the children of Israel, oppress God's people, and God sends Moses. Most of us know the story, right? He sends Moses to proclaim to Pharaoh to let my people go. And if you haven't read the story in the book of Exodus, you've probably seen the movie uh, Prince of Egypt. It's a good movie. You know, I don't want to dismiss it. It's a great movie. It might be one of my favorite movies. It really, it really tells the story well of the Exodus, and um, God sends plagues when Pharaoh refuses to let the children of Israel go. He sends uh, diseases and boils and gnats and flies and locusts and hail and fire that destroys crops and livestock and people. And he covers Egypt with um, a darkness, it says in Exodus 10.21, a darkness that can be felt. Just think about that for a moment. God, one of the plagues is that God sends a darkness on the land that can be felt. <clears throat> and the tenth and final plague kills the firstborn of the males in Egypt. And when the Hebrews leave, they plunder the Egyptians for all of their wealth. Um, and God parts the Red Sea, and he brings the children of Israel into the wilderness and gives them a covenant. And then there's the Sinai experience with the Ten Commandments, and um, the Exodus story is so central to the identity of the children of Israel that it becomes a creed for them. In fact, there are many places in the Old Testament scriptures where they've summarized the story of the Exodus, and it becomes their creed, right? As, as Christians, we have the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. Well, the Jews had their creed, and their creed was a summary, a recounting uh, and telling of the story of the Exodus. It was their creed. It was this identification marker of who they were as a people. We're the people that God has delivered from Egypt, from the mighty hand of Pharaoh and his army and parted the Red Sea. We're the people of Yahweh. That was their defining story. Seven centuries after the Exodus, the Israelite nation uh, is plunged into a new kind of slavery, a slavery to sin and idolatry, and it's really by their own doing. 
Um, and God brings judgment on the nation of Israel through the persecution of other nations and armies that, uh, that uh, come to conquest, uh, come to conquer their land. And um, most of the prophets, a lot of their prophecies are going on at the beginning, middle, or end of the Babylonian captivity, when the children of Israel, for their idolatry and wickedness, are sent into a new literal slavery. So their spiritual bondage to idolatry actually brings them into, a, again, an actual slavery as captives to the Babylonians. And the prophets pick up on this because in their prophecies, uh, they envision by the unction and power of the Holy Spirit, a new exodus. And this new exodus is when God will ultimately and finally deliver his people from not just the physical slavery they're experiencing in Babylon, but an ultimate, definitive, final deliverance from slavery and bondage spiritually. Uh, in Daniel 9, uh, when he is in captivity in Babylon... He recognizes that God has spoke to him, that there, there, will be, there will be 70 years of captivity, but God actually says, Daniel, not just 70 years, but your people will be in captivity 70 times 7. And what he's proclaiming is that the people will literally return to the land after 70 years of physical captivity, but it won't be for another 70 times 7, which is these prophetic weeks, which is about 490 years roughly. Where, the, where your people, it'll take that long for the people to, to be delivered from an ultimate uh, captivity. In other words, when Christ comes, there will be an ultimate exodus, an ultimate delivery, uh, deliverance from sin. And so the prophets uh, talk about this. The prophets envision it. The Old Testament stories and narratives look forward to it. Um, and so when <clears throat> Paul writes to the Colossians, this passage here, he is reinterpreting the Exodus story. He's building off all this prophetic expectation from Isaiah and Daniel of a new Exodus for the people of God, where Jesus brings not just the Colossians, but all that trust in him out of slavery and darkness of sin. That's what's going on here in this text. The promised land then becomes um, a symbol of the entire earth. So there's all of these motifs that are being picked up on. And so whereas when the, the Israelites came out of Egypt, God gives them an actual land, the land of Canaan, <clears throat> when God delivers this new people, he's going to give them not just an actual parcel of land in the Middle East, but the whole earth is going to be promised to God's son and his kingdom. So there's a couple things I want us to recognize here this morning that um, in these verses. First, Jesus reveals God's new people, right? Just as the Exodus originally identified who the people of God were, right? The Egyptians had their false gods. They had all of these different gods. Well, the Exodus was God's way of saying, these are my covenant people. Well, what Jesus does in the new covenant is he identifies um, his new people, a renewed Israel, if you will. Secondly, what's going on here is a proclamation that Jesus is God's true son. Now, that's something we take for granted. We say, well, of course Jesus is God's true son. We all know that. We're Christians. Well, we take that for granted. But for Jews in the first century, 
Israel was God's son. Israel as a nation was God's son, uh, the object of God's favor. And so the idea that Jesus is actually God's son is a huge way of saying that in Jesus Christ, all of the hopes and aspirations of the nation of Israel are summed up. The destiny of Israel is summed up in God's true son, Jesus. The Israelites were the Old Testament saints. When they left Egypt, they inherited the land of Canaan. Canaan shined with the light of God's blessings and the truth that Yahweh was God not the Egyptian gods. Uh, Paul is telling the Colossians that the first reason for thanksgiving, we just read it a minute ago, is that they have been given a share of this new exodus, the deliverance of the true people of God, the God, according to verse 12, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Another motif from Scripture, light and darkness. And a minute ago, I had just talked about one of the plagues in Egypt was a darkness that could be felt. Have you ever been in a room that was so dark you could not even see your hand in front of you? Or if you've woken up in the middle of the night in one of those rooms, there's a sense of panic because you don't know where you are. The darkness that was on the children of Israel in, uh, that was on Egypt um, was, uh, uh, was a spiritual darkness, but God sent an actual plague. Interestingly, God's people were in the land of Goshen, and the darkness didn't fall on them. But by including the Gentiles, <clears throat> which the Colossians were, and we are too, most of us, um, Paul is including us as those who are now able to share in this inheritance. God pours out his covenant blessings He declares all of the blessings of the covenant for their obedience, including the promised land. The the promise of land in Canaan was this inheritance that they would receive from God. And so what Paul is doing right here is he's redefining the people of God by saying no longer are the people of God limited to an ethnic group in a particular geopolitical part of the earth, but now all who come to faith in Christ are part of God's people. So What happens in the New Testament, and this is something we have to do, we have to give Jesus and the New Testament writers permission to reinterpret the Old Testament. It doesn't mean they're saying the Old Testament is false in any way, but what they're doing is, in a new and powerful way, is they're saying, here's what the story is really all about. And we have to allow Jesus, the New Testament writers, to do that. Because if we don't, we'll create this disjunction between the New Testament and the Old Testament. We'll read the Old Testament one way and think God had a way of saving people in the Old Testament, and we'll read the New Testament in an entirely different way, and we'll think God has a special separate way of saving people and doing things in the New Testament, and that's really not true. The Bible is one story. From Genesis to Revelation, there is one grand overarching narrative. It is one story. And Jesus and the disciples and Paul specifically here in this passage is reconfiguring the story of Israel's history around Christ and the Holy Spirit. This happens in other places too, even with the idea of monotheism, the Shema Israel and in Deuteronomy 6, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. In the epistles, Paul takes that and reconfigures it around Christ and the Holy Spirit. And so... The chosen people were the Israelites, the Jews, 
Abraham's natural descendants. They were God's elect holy people. But Exodus 19 and 6 um, says that Israel was a nation of priests. The other non-elect nations were pagans steeped in idolatry. Only Israel had the light. Only Israel had the light. Keep that in mind. Israel is one nation among all the nations of the world before Christ comes, and only Israel has the light of God's truth that there is one God, Yahweh. All the other nations are, they're lost. And God, in his grace and mercy from time to time, he brings some of those pagans and those Gentiles in, right? There's Rahab and Ruth in the story of, of people who convert, but essentially at that time, only they have the light. So for, for Paul to say to the Colossians, the Gentile Colossians, that now, here's something you should be grateful for, that God has caused you to share in the inheritance of his chosen people in light. No longer are you in darkness, is what Paul is saying. You've come out of darkness because of Jesus Christ, because of the definitive uh, action that happened on the cross. You've come out of the darkness. You're sharing now with the saints in light. Um, the Septuagint, the, old, the Greek Old Testament, uh, translates holy ones, which is a reference for God's chosen people, as saints. This is where this language comes from. We think saints are a New Testament idea, not an Old Testament idea. Actually, it is. It's just a, another way of saying God's holy ones. We're sharing in the inheritance of God's holy ones, in light now, no longer in darkness. And Paul is saying that the heritage of God's people is no longer the prerogative of one race. But it's opened up so that people of every conceivable background can share in it. Just take a moment and look around this building. Look around the people sitting next to you. We've got people from all different backgrounds. Right? White, black, Hispanic, Asian. We have all of these nations, these ethnicities, and these races that have come together and are part of the people of God. And before it was exclusive exclusively the nation of Israel, Abraham's descendants. <clears throat> um, there's a funny illustration. When I was a kid, I grew up, and I, um, I grew up watching uh, the little Dr. Seuss cartoons. And um, my favorite uh, was the story of the Sneetches. Someone is thinking, is this guy really illustrating the Bible with the Sneetches? Um, yeah, I am. It's a good story. Um, and if you know the story of the Sneetches, there's some with stars on their belly and some that don't have stars in their belly. And the, the star-bellied Sneetches think they're better than the Sneetches with no, nothing on their belly. And a guy shows up. You know, He's a salesman. His name is McBean. And he's got a machine that's going to put stars on the bellies of the Sneetches with no stars. And the other ones, they get upset because they're no longer special and distinct. And he's got another machine that'll take the stars off their bellies. And if you remember the cartoon, they're going in and out of these machines because they're trying to outdo each other. And after a while, they all get confused. And nobody, nobody knows who were the original star-bellied sneeches because now half of them who had it originally don't have it, and vice versa. Um, <clears throat> actually, uh, the author of that story was trying to make a point about racism. And... Um, one of the things, one of the beauties of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the new covenant is that those who were formerly alienated from the kingdom and household of faith are now welcomed in by God's grace. Um, 
Paul tells the Ephesians, at one time you were Gentiles, you Gentiles were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So just as that old exodus defined, it was an identification marker for Israel, this is who we are. People said, who are you? This is who we are. We are the people who serve Yahweh, the living God, the creator of the ends of the earth, who delivered us from the superpower Egypt. And in the same way, this new exodus for us, this is what Paul is saying, it gives us our identity. Our identity is in Jesus Christ. It's not in what you do for a living. It's not in your background. It's not in your, your, uh, your pedigree, you know. Some people say, my family goes back to the Mayflower. You know, it's this, and that's fine. But none of that matters without Jesus Christ. Your pedigree, all, all, of, those, all of those other identification markers are under the chief identification marker of being in Christ. This is our identity. We are children of the living God. We're servants of Christ. And so that's the point Paul is making here. And then there's a transition. So not only is there Jesus revealing the new people of God, Jew and Gentile together by faith, but he's also, Paul is also revealing who the true son of God is. Um, A few moments ago, I talked about um, Israel's identity as God's son. If you, remember, if you recall, in the book of Matthew, when Herod persecuted um, the infants, uh, right? He killed the infants under two years old, and Joseph and Mary take Jesus into Egypt, right, until Herod's death. And when Jesus is brought out of Egypt, uh, Matthew reinterprets that passage, out of Egypt I have called my son. Now the appropriation of God's son is this one. Jesus Christ. And then when Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, a dove, in the, uh, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove lands on him, and a voice from heaven says something that we, like I said earlier, we just take it for granted. This is, this is my beloved son. That's what's happening. The emphasis is on that. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We read that and we go, yeah, this is my beloved son. Who am I well pleased? We've read it a million times, and we don't think much about it. But for someone in the first century to hear that this one person is the fulfillment and the embodiment of sonship, that this is God's son, not a nation, this is God's son. Now, now here's, here's something that will really bake your noodle. <laughs> Jesus is the summary of Israel's history and hopes and expectations. When we are in God's Son, we are Israel. For those who are in Christ, we're the new Israel. Jesus is God's true Son. He's the true fulfillment of of Israel, of the nation, of the hopes, of the expectations. And when we're in Him, whether we're Jew or Gentile, we really belong to the people of God. Outside of Christ, we don't. That's the point here that Paul is making. It's a powerful point, and it's a very controversial point, especially for people in the first century. 
So why? Why this transition of identity to Jesus as God's true son? Because no longer is identification with an ethnic people the marker of sonship, but identification with Christ. The historic creeds and confessions also um, touch on this. The Apostles' Creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, um, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. The Nicene Creed says something very similar. And what's interesting for that is his sonship comes before the incarnation. So Jesus doesn't become the son of God. He's always been the son of God. The incarnation just reveals it to the world. And this is a lot of theology. And Colossians is content, the book of Colossians, to give us this this really heavy-duty theology. But the question you might be asking is, well, that's great. That's really good stuff, and that's really interesting, but how does this apply to my life? When you leave out of here, all of the pressures and stresses of the week are going to hit you, maybe not immediately, but certainly as you go to bed tonight, right? Sunday's a beautiful day, right? We celebrate the Lord's Day, and, and we have Sabbath rest, and then as we get ready for Monday, there's a whole new level of stress that kind of comes back. And that's fine. I mean, that's just the way it is in the world. But this knowledge that we belong to the people of God, that we are God's people, that our identification is in Jesus, and it's really not in anything else, because all of those other things can be fleeting and fail you, right? Your job, your identity in the world, or how much money you make, and all those different things, those things, they're not constant. They come and they go, but the one thing that never leaves us and will never leave us is our identity, who we are. We're the people that God so loved that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's who we are. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us by his grace into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father, thank you um, for what you've done for us in your son, Jesus Christ. We were aliens and strangers to the covenants and the promises and the kingdom, and we had no inheritance in eternity. We were enemies, estranged, by our sin and under your just divine wrath. But you transferred us. While we were still in our sins, you loved us, transferred us from the domain of darkness, from the bondage and slavery of our sins into the kingdom of the Son whom you love, Jesus. Lord, thank you for this. Thank you that we can, we can go about our lives with the knowledge that it, it doesn't matter what what we think of ourselves or what anyone else thinks of us, we are your children. We are your people. Lord, let this knowledge strengthen us. Let this uh, truth comfort us. Let it fill us with joy, the joy of our salvation. Let it be the joy of the Lord. In Jesus' name. As the ushers come by,